and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 19th of May with me, Ian Welsh. We've got an interesting innovation case study coming up this week. Recently, I spoke with Catherine Hoffman from materials company Eastman and Ed Higgins from Stanley Black & Decker about their work together developing more sustainable power tools using recycled plastics and other new materials. It's a great example of B2B collaboration. That's coming up. First, though, it's time for a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. This week from Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson. A new UN Environment Programme report highlights the potential to slash global plastic pollution by 80% by 2040 through practical and affordable measures. The key steps involve eliminating unnecessary plastics, promoting reuse with refillable bottles, boosting recycling efforts and adopting greener alternatives. These changes, driven by government policies and industry transformations, could reduce plastic pollution to 40 million tonnes in 2040 instead of an estimated 227 million tonnes if no action is taken. The report emphasises the significant economic and environmental benefits that would accompany this shift, including trillions of dollars saved and the prevention of health, climate and environmental damages caused by plastic pollution. Negotiations for a legally binding agreement to end plastic pollution by 2024 are currently underway, with governments in the private sector urged to take decisive action to keep plastics out of ecosystems. EU countries are finalising a law to achieve a new binding renewable energy target of 42.5% by 2030. The bloc aims to decarbonise its economies whilst addressing climate change and bolstering energy security without relying on any one single country, notably Russia, by fostering a European green industry. The law has received political agreement and now awaits formal approval from EU countries and European Parliament. The target supersedes the existing goal of 32%, and sets a binding target, with member states encouraged to aim for 45%. The law would have consequences for the transport and industrial sectors, including a requirement for at least 29% renewable share or 13% reduction in greenhouse gas intensity in transport. It further mandates a 1.6% annual increase in renewable energy use for industry, and sets specific benchmarks for the renewable sourcing of hydrogen in industrial processes. The law accommodates a provision allowing countries to reduce renewable fuel targets for industry if their hydrogen production from fossil fuels is below a certain threshold, benefiting those transitioning away from fossil fuels using nuclear energy. The EU has also made a significant move to tackle waste in the textile sector, with member states endorsing a ban on the destruction of unsold apparel. The sector is responsible for a fifth of the EU's greenhouse gas emissions, and it is estimated that only a quarter of the six million tonnes of textiles discarded by EU citizens annually are recycled. The proposed measures also include the introduction of a product passport and requirements for online marketplaces to ensure compliance. This move aims to address environmental issues and promote a more sustainable textile industry, following the lead of countries like France that have already implemented similar legislation nationally. However, France's leader, Emmanuel Macron, has recently called for a European regulatory break in the wake of several new environmental regulations. He argues that countries should now take some time to implement new regulations or risk losing industrial players and cause harm to investments. Critics have pointed out that whilst the EU has made rapid progress in environmental regulations, it's done far from enough to combat climate change and interlinking issues. Researchers have warned that the lack of transparency in battery supply chains poses a significant challenge to a just net zero transition in addressing human rights risks. A new report reveals that car manufacturers, including Tesla and Toyota, are indirectly connected to human rights abuses in their battery supply chains in Indonesia and the Philippines. 
The report highlights concerns over health impacts, loss of food security for indigenous communities, deforestation, water pollution, and land rights violations associated with nickel mining and processing. The report calls on car companies to implement and report on human rights due diligence processes throughout the supply chain through a safe and inclusive approach based on worker and community engagement. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Catherine Hoffman, Sustainability Strategic Initiatives Manager at Chemicals and Materials Business Eastman, and Ed Higgins, Director of Product Development at Stanley Black & Decker, about how they have collaborated on developing more sustainable power tools, including using recycled plastics. We're going to talk about a collaboration project that you guys are involved in. Ed, why don't you kick us off? What do Eastman and Black & Decker work together on? Over the last three or four years in, Stanley Black and Decker and Eastman have been collaborating on a power tools initiative to improve our sustainability within that space. As of yesterday, there was a traditional way of making power tools that had existed for many, many years. The two organisations, one experts in developing materials, one experts in developing power tools and hardware, have joined forces, built a relationship based on trust, openness and a shared ambition of developing a solution of sustainable power tools, which didn't exist yesterday. The collaboration first started back in 2019. We are mutual sponsors of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Black & Decker representatives were there and explained our vision or our ambition for the power tool space. And the Eastman representatives were able to open a dialogue and start the foundations for what has become now the launch of the Reviva Power Tools line. When you say yesterday, you mean in the past? Pre-2022. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for explaining that. How has Black & Decker approached developing more sustainable power tools then? We've been developing power tools since the early 1900s. The methods and the processes of developing those have evolved slowly, but not really changed since the introduction of new materials in the late 70s and then some new chemicals with regards to batteries in the late 80s, early 90s. And so the next generation that we as leaders in the power tool space set our objectives on was to try and reduce our environmental impact within our tools. As a total organisation, we consume around 160,000 metric tonnes of prime plastic resin every year. And that was an area that as an organisation, if we could reduce our reliance on prime resin, that was a significant impact regarding sustainability that we could start to roll out and introduce in our product development processes. When we started to look at the project, we had some very high sponsors within the Stanley Black & Decker organisation, starting at the very top and our CEO. Across the organisation, we looked at manufacturing methods, creating our own renewable energy. But the one area that we felt was being underserved was the tools and the products that we developed themselves. We have some great products that allow people to replenish furniture and upcycle and create and reuse spaces but the actual products themselves use prime raw materials within them. So was there some improvements in there? And so we started by looking at the traditional power tool today. What's it made out of? How is it made? What's it packaged in? What comes in the box? What comes outside of the box? And what does it look like at the end of life? We spent many hours talking to hundreds of consumers to understand their interpretation of sustainability within power tools. It wasn't a category that had any story around sustainability pre-2022. Manufacturers were using recycled packaging. People were talking about upcycling to reuse the materials they were working on, but there was no stories as such within the products themselves. The first area we looked at, the housing that the product comes, 
is about 50% of the actual material that's used in the total product. That being the single biggest contributor, we looked at, was there an area to improve there? We also looked at how the products are presented, the packaging they come in, the materials inside the packaging to protect it in transit. So we reviewed the packaging itself, the single-use plastics in there. And we also looked at what happens to the product at the end of life. In many instances, these products are just disposed of and end up in waste streams. We wanted to address those three areas, the product and the housing itself, the packaging that it comes in, and two, what happens to the product at the end of life. What are then the key properties of the products that you've created? We set out some guiding principles at the very start of the project. With the help of Eastman and the team there, we've been able to deliver to the principles we wanted to. So we wanted the recycled content or an alternative for the traditional prime plastic resin. So the, the benchmark was set that at least 50% of the tool housing itself should be made of recycled content. The product was to use no single-use plastics. In fact, we wanted to do away with single-use plastics altogether in the product, in the packaging and everywhere. The packaging it was sold in was to be made of recycled materials and also to be fully recyclable at the curbside at the end of life. And then the product itself was designed with end-of-life disposal in mind. So could we disassemble the unit, ideally a consumer disassemble the unit, and be able to recycle the lithium cells inside it, be able to recycle the housings itself, be able to recycle the switches, components and motors, etc. So in five, 10 years time, when that product has reached its end of life, 85 to 90% of the Reviva product range could be disposed of in the most optimum fashion. And what makes up the product range? What are the range of products in the Reviva line? Or nine products, seven tools and two storage solutions. So we have a drill, a drill driver, a hammer drill, screwdriver, a sander, a jigsaw, an oscillating tool, multi-tool, a laser level and a handheld vacuum. So once you've made the mess with the power tools, you've got a handheld vacuum to tidy the mess up afterwards. And then there's two different storage box solutions to allow you to tidy away and store them neatly in the garage. Catherine, let me turn to you. Can you tell me a bit about the materials that Ed has used in developing his new tools? What are the characteristics of them? What are the materials that you use to recycle into these materials? Triton Renew is the material that we've been partnering with Ed and Black & Decker on and in the Reviva line. And so Triton Renew is a material that contains recycled content through a mass balance allocation from molecular recycling. And it's exactly the same as Triton made from a virgin fossil feedstock. We actually started developing Triton Renew in 2019. So that's a, a similar timeline to when we got together with Black & Decker in this collaboration. We really saw a need for recycled content in the plastics market, but more specifically, recycled content that didn't have any negative effects on performance. Traditional mechanically recycled material that we're familiar with can have degraded performance when we think about things like color or toughness or resistance to cracking with exposure to cleaning agents, something like that. Looking at the needs of the market and then what we might be able to do, we, we looked at our own portfolio and we actually ran a technology for molecular recycling up until 2001 in support of Kodak. This looked like a really great opportunity to bring that back because the market had a real need for materials that had recycled content, but then also still had the same performance level as something from a virgin fossil feedstock. 
We dusted that technology off and got it running again. We've been able to make materials through this molecular recycling technology at using polyester-based recovered plastic material. When I say that polyester-based, we're not talking about water bottles or clear plastic soda bottles. Those have an excellent mechanical recycling stream and We really view molecular recycling as complementary to mechanical. And so we don't want to do anything to divert any material from a mechanical stream. And so we're looking at things like textiles and carpet and colored polyester, even the clamshells that you can get at the grocery store that have like lettuce and fruit in them. We're really focused on trying to provide end of use solutions for plastic materials that don't have anywhere else to go besides landfill or incineration, and then use those to make really high quality polymers or plastics that can go into applications like power tools, because there is no sacrifice in performance for sustainability. You mentioned that there's a mass balance approach. Could you just explain how that works? When we're running our molecular recycling technology, we cannot exactly trace a molecule through the system. And so a molecule that's coming from a recovered waste plastic and a molecule that's coming from a virgin fossil feedstock look exactly the same. There's no analytical test method to allow us to tell the difference. Because of the amount of material that we can process today, we are still running some virgin fossil feedstock along with the recovered waste plastic. And so with both of those things going into our reactors at the same time and the inability to differentiate between the two molecules, we need to use a mass balance approach. Therefore, we know how much recovered waste plastic we've put into our system. And therefore we can account for that and what's coming out of the reactor at the back end. Triton Renew currently contains 50% recycled material. Is there a pathway to greater recycled content? And what are the barriers to this? One of the biggest barriers right now is just the scale that we can run at. We are in the process of building a larger facility in Kingsport, and that's our manufacturing headquarters. With that larger facility, we'll be able to process more of that recovered waste plastic. That'll allow us to move to higher percentages. And if we're looking at something like a 100%, we do see that as achievable in the future. There is a little part of the chemistry and the material that we can't currently derive from the molecular recycling technology we're running today, but we are working on another technology that will allow us to get there and we do see a pathway. Is getting hold of sufficient amounts of feedstock a challenge? It can be. It's really interesting where we're building out these new supply chains, basically. And so these are materials that have traditionally gone to landfill or incineration. And so it's finding sufficient volumes to move across the country or across an ocean that makes sense to then be processed by us. And so when you're talking about carpet, it's really helpful for us to work with partner in California that already is aggregating this carpet and we can collect it. If we're thinking about waste from the mechanical recycling stream, then we need to be working with these individual mechanical recyclers and how do we aggregate that material appropriately to bring it in. One thing I forgot to mention earlier is that we are committed with our molecular recycling technologies to have a lower environmental impact than using a virgin fossil feedstock. 
And so as we're looking at finding these materials from across the country, across the world, we only want to bring something in that's actually going to result in a lower footprint. And so that may mean that it doesn't make sense for us to be sourcing material from Asia right now, for example. That's really important, isn't it? I mean, so often people think about changing away from fossil fuel-based plastics. Inadvertently, in fact, they can increase their impact, increase foot and footprints. People forget that, in fact, plastic is in itself something that has quite a low impact in terms of carbon emissions. It was developed for a reason. People sometimes forget that. Ed, let me turn back to you. Obviously, power tools are going to have a very high material safety performance requirements. And I would imagine that for you guys at Black & Decker, that's going to be a number one essential. You can't compromise on that in any way. What are the specific requirements that you need from the materials that are in the Reviva product line? You hit the nail on the head, pardon the DIY pun therein. If someone's buying a power tool, they have a, a need, a material to cut, a hole to put in the wall, a screw to drive into a piece of furniture. When we looked at the Reviva product family, we didn't relax or change any of our usual test performance and safety metrics that we operate to. If you buy a Reviva tool today, you've got the Black & Decker promise that there is no compromise with regards to safety, durability, performance. And our tests and our safety criteria are based around those three areas. There are regulations we have to adhere to from a safety perspective. There are chemicals used within the tool and the lubricants within the mechanical parts that the material needs to be able to withstand. There is durability from a perspective of if somebody uses it and it drops it, all the components inside remain safely enclosed and away from consumers being able to touch them. And there are also twisting and heat forces that are generated when you use a tool, whether you're leaning on a drill, whether you're pushing a saw through a piece of wood, the plastic needs to be able to withstand the heat, the twisting force that's going through those materials. Working closely with the engineering team and the Black & Decker engineers, we were very open in sharing what the test requirements were. Some of the test criteria were fairly standard to Eastman and known, but other areas like some of the drop tests, dropping a drill from a height with a battery on the bottom, making sure the battery cells and the electronics remain completely enclosed after impact. That was a more challenging one that the teams had to work on and Eastman cleverly reviewed the formulation to make sure we could meet all the stringent tests. And on top of the safety and the product tests, we had brand and corporate targets. The colour matches have to be in the right palettes for the Black & Decker brand. The product and the sustainable story had to be true for us to be able to put the Black & Decker stamp of, yes, you can guarantee this is a, a real and honest commitment to a sustainable product. Again, it all comes back to the collaboration and the partnership between the two companies that every time we encountered a test that we weren't quite passing or an internal obstacle we needed to get over, Eastman had been there to support and partner with Black & Decker to get through the requirement, including some of our claims, some of our communications, some of our legal covers to make sure if you, Ian, as a consumer, come, I don't you know, want to question the programme, every corner is covered. The product, there is no compromise with regards to a traditionally made tool versus sustainably made tool. Catherine, what out of all these very high performance requirements, what in particular was the biggest challenge for you guys when you're developing the product or the materials? It is really application dependent. So as we're looking at each power tool, we are looking at the individual needs of that product. When we look at Triton, it's it's a high toughness product. 
Actually, stiffness is one that I know that we had discussed quite a bit because the materials they were using previously had a little bit higher stiffness. And so then we were having discussions around this has the right durability. It has the right resistance to things like cleaning agents or oils. So then how can we make sure that it can handle the torque of a power tool and there's no issues there? And we spent significant conversations around, you know, are there design differences that we can do that will make this work appropriately? Or do we need to add some reinforcement? We didn't end up going the reinforcement route, which I think we all preferred. It was more of a a focus on, on using the right design for the material. And that's where the collaboration from the beginning really makes a difference. You know, we need to make a little bit of a tweak to this to make the whole product work exactly the way both companies want it to. Ed, what evidence do you have that consumers are looking for this sort of more sustainable power tool? This was as much driven by corporate vision as it was by an outward consumer need. We had the sponsorship of the CEO at the time and challenged us to develop a more sustainable product solution, which is what we went on to do. We did speak to many consumers and sustainability is becoming the norm. There is a degree of expectation that manufacturers, big manufacturers like ourselves at Black & Decker are taking the lead and being responsible for the products we develop. Whether that is something as simple as creating our own energy or whether it's the products we put in front of them, it's the norm. It's no longer the exception, it's become the norm. As we spoke to consumers, we got a good understanding of what they interpret sustainable to mean. Is it the materials that are used? Is it the longevity of the product? Is it the recyclability of the product? And understanding that, we came up with the principles that guided the Reviva development. As we've launched since the launch in 2022, middle of 2022, We've seen different countries respond differently, which just shows the evolution of sustainability around the globe. You've got some markets that are really early adopters of sustainable products and have an easier comprehension that it doesn't mean compromise or it doesn't mean substandard. And the sales in those regions have really taken off with very little resistance. And there's other regions where we've had to work a little harder to communicate the message and reiterate the story around performance without compromise. And as we look forward, what we've learned from going through the Reviva process is allowing us to build a product road and a product vision, which centers a lot more around sustainable products. And I can't say too much here, but we've got announcements that will come out later in 2023 about how Black & Decker and Stanley Black & Decker want to take the partnership that we've developed with Eastman and how we translate that through to a product road where products get bigger, more powerful, we can cover more applications, we can roll out new sustainable initiatives, improve our sustainable credentials, and how that rolls forward well beyond 2023 and over the next 10 years or so to ultimately be able to serve a consumer exactly as they are today with a traditionally made tool, but with a sustainable product instead. So is that what the next generation of power tools will look like then? The next generation of power tools will look bigger, better and stronger and harder and faster than the existing traditional ones we look like today. This is the future. There's no reason to go backwards. So as we move forwards, you will see the traditional detachable battery packs. You will see bigger motors, bigger applications, whether it's circular saws, whether it's bench tools, whether it's corded products. That's where we will go. We will go to all the areas we serve today with sustainable initiatives to reduce our global impact. They'll be bigger, better, faster, but with recycling and reusability front of mind. Absolutely. We have set the principles for Reviva and we won't go backwards from those points. If you receive a product in the future from Black & Decker, 
the promise is those five things in the Reviva family will be the minimum you would expect from materials used, packaging it comes in, end of life disposal and experience. We're actually working with Eastman to design for circularity. So when we get to a stage and the product does come to the end of its life, we could return the clamshells back to Eastman and it can go back into the process to start the circle of life all over again and go into the next generation of tools that come our way. It's been fascinating hearing from both Ed and Catherine about this really interesting business-to-business collaboration, which is undoubtedly going to be the future of sustainable innovations going forward. But for now, Ed Higgins from Sandy Black & Decker, Catherine Hoffman from Eastman, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ed. Thank you, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. If you've not yet had a chance to read it, do check out the second in the two-part briefing on regenerative agriculture from my colleague B. Stevenson. I'm on the road next week visiting some forest carbon projects for the next in Innovation Forum's From the Forest Frontline series, so B will be hosting the podcast. I'll then be reporting from Innovation Forum's Future of Food Conference in Minneapolis in a couple of weeks' time. If you're attending, do come and say hello. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.